0: Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 94. I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and excited today I get to bring you a wonderful conversation with Dr. Alan Wade on his response-based practice, uh, response-based approach, and the language that we use in the work that we do. And I think you're really going to find this uh, just a really generative conversation. So... Uh, before we get there, I just wanted to make a quick announcement. I've been getting some uh, emails uh, lately, DMs, whatever, from students in the field that have, are watching my videos, and their teachers are the ones that are their professors, what have you, are the ones that are uh, making them part of the syllabus and that kind of thing. And I just want to say thank you for that. And um, it's wonderful to hear that you know these videos that I'm doing on YouTube in my on my kitchen table uh are being used in that way and as uh you know teaching tools that kind of thing and I'm just you know and if you haven't seen any of them go to the radical therapist youtube channel this is what this is all about to kind of point you over there i got a couple new videos up uh, one the most recent and you got to excuse my clickbait titling, but I, you know, the, I don't make these things not to be viewed. But, um, but on the the most recent ones, on you know, just the ideas around uh, neoliberalism, governmentality, uh, Deleuze's and uh, Foucault's ideas around our fascism's. And, um, yeah, and how and some questions we might ask ourselves about how we are to be governed and by whom are we to be governed. So uh, I think you should check that out. So and to all the professors, teachers, supervisors that are using my videos, um, your students are emailing me and I appreciate that you're using them. and And I'm really appreciate that you find value in them. So thank you for that. Go to the Radical Therapist YouTube channel. Okay. So now it's time to get to our guest. Dr. Alan Wade is an internationally recognized expert on responses to interpersonal violence. Broadly defined, he teaches nationally and internationally on developing effective and dignified responses to interpersonal violence. Uh, Alan lives on Vancouver Island where he works in private practice as a family therapist and researcher and he is primarily concerned with addressing the problem of violence in all its forms and in promoting socially just legal and human services work. Uh, with Linda Coates and Nick Todd, Alan has developed a response based approach to working with victims and, and perpetrators of violence. He and his colleagues at the Center for Response Based Practice in Canada, Google it, conduct original research and analysis on social responses by state institutions such as courts, uh, specialized panels, police, child protection authorities, etc. Uh, they also provide direct service to individuals and families where interpersonal violence is is at an issue. Uh, Dr. Uh, Wade is also an expert witness in family law cases where violence is at issue, advises legal counsel on examination of expert reports, and supports related initiatives by West Coast LEAF and other organizations. He also provides training to police, lawyers, judges, psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, child protection, protection teams shelter and transition house teams and administrators. And he and his colleagues have published numerous articles and book chapters. So without further ado, let's meet Dr. Alan Wade. Hi, Alan. Welcome to the Radical Therapist podcast. Hi. Thanks, Chris. It's good to meet you. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, okay. Uh, I guess I would just like to get rolling and start by asking if you could take us back a bit and share how your response based approach came to be, what is its history and what ideas informed its development?
1: Sure. Um, well, I, uh, when I, about 35 years ago or so, 30, 35 years ago, when I started uh, trying to do something called counseling or therapy, um, I, I uh, fell in love with uh, uh, Systemic Family Therapy. My, my original training uh, was with uh, the Milan team, primarily Boscalo and Chikin. Hmm. And that's because uh, there's a psychiatrist in our area, a guy called Robin Rutledge, who was connected to those guys. So when he moved to our uh, tiny little town on uh, Vancouver Island here on unceded Casca, or unceded and uh, First Nation territory, hmm. Um, when he moved here, he had that connection and, and a little group formed, and we started uh, trying to learn about systemic ideas, uh, by reading, um, through the Milan team back to the Palo Alto group and who they were very connected with, uh, Václavik and Weakland and Fish and all those folks mm-hmm. there. Uh, so, so that was really important because, um, as you know, it, it's a it's a particular way of thinking about uh, the way that humans work, mm-hmm. and also a, a particular way of thinking about suffering and um, how people respond to one another. And at bottom, it's it's a very interactional kind of orientation. So, the I became really focused, along with a whole bunch of other people, on looking as closely as possible at social interaction. And um, so that changed some of the questions I was starting to think of when I was, you know, meeting with people. So, um, an armed robbery—a person who'd been a victim of armed robbery, for example—mentioning, um, yeah, he had—he pointed the gun at me and he said, you know, give me the money or I'll, I'll blow your fucking head off. And and so, uh, I started to ask questions like, so when he said that, how did you respond? What did you do? Hmm. Because in moments like that. You know very tiny responses you know what you do with your eyes where you look where you don't look uh, the tone of your voice how you hold your body all of those things can be profoundly important moment to moment i mean if you stare at a person who's got a gun pointed at your face the wrong way you're possibly more likely to get killed than if you adopt a submissive posture so in this particular case how did you respond and this person said um well, I'm not stupid. I gave him the fucking money. What do you think I did? <laughs> so I said, yeah, of course you did. How did you do that? Yeah. And uh, and she kind of thought about it for a minute and said, uh, slowly. I did it slowly. I said, slowly? Why slowly? She said, I was memorizing him. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So can you please tell me how is it that... <laughs> how is it that you have the composure to think about that and to memorize someone in a moment like that where you have a gun pointed at you? And she said, well, I knew, I knew I was gonna have to give a description of them later. And, but I think really it comes from, probably from protecting my little sisters. So now we go down into the whole history of her ability to respond to intense adversity in a composed, calm, thoughtful manner. Mm. She has a whole life history of that. So that that kind of becomes then the focus. So she emerges as an active, competent, responsive, terrified, despairing, worried person. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: So I began, when you focus on social interaction, social interaction is inherently responsive. People respond to one another in an ongoing manner. I mean, and this begins in the first 48 hours of life, right? As Mickey Rosenthal showed many years ago, infants and mothers taking turns, rudimentary turn taking. So, you know, life is a response fest, basically, Mm. where we learn. Yeah, you know, we, we learn very quickly that, you know, when I call, you respond, when you call, I respond. Uh, That's what we have together. And some people have argued, you know, that that's really the beginning of moral action, Mm.
0: uh,
1: which is an interesting way to think. Mm. So that that's one kind of set of ideas. But because I started to work I, you know, I live in an area where I have been working for meeting with, uh, learning from getting trained by indigenous people, primarily indigenous women for the past 30, 35 years. And so um, I was meeting with people who had been abducted from their families and um, as children kidnapped by the Canadian state and the uh, typically the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police put into prison camps that are euphemistically called residential schools uh, where they were violated, uh, abused, tortured um, at extraordinarily high levels. You may in fact be, you may have heard um, lately of the discovery of
0: yeah. hundreds
1: yeah, uh, of bodies of, um, of Indigenous adults and children in unmarked graves around around the... the um, the grounds of former, these former prison camps, um, run by the Catholic church at any rate. So, um, So with meeting with those folks and, and beginning to get a sense of how children in those contexts actually responded to and resisted the violence, how they, um, managed as best they could in in a completely unmanageable, terrifying situation. And so that there's a literature about that, that written by indigenous people that's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And um, so I really began to try to understand that and ask, learn about that in the context of doing something called counseling or therapy or Mm -hmm. whatever it became. And um, try to provide room for those accounts to emerge by asking pretty simple, pretty direct questions and just a kind of a quiet, methodical focused way. Uh, so, you, you know, and, and what you end up learning about, or what I felt I was learning about was really the dignity of the human spirit, mm. um, the ways in which people try to preserve their dignity in the worst possible situations. And if I had to, if I had to sort of sum up the method, I would say that's what it is. Mm. It's really the focused study of human dignity in the worst possible situations. So that's tied to that Mm -hmm. was the whole literature about, you know, anti-colonial studies um, that some of which came from sort of Western intellectual traditions, Um, Foucault would be an example or Edward Said, Mm -hmm. probably for me, the foremost um, sort of intellectual around that. Um, But also, you know, the feminist critique of family therapy was really important to me. Mm -hmm. Because although uh, you know, Michelle Bograd, Olga, Sil- Olga Silverstein, uh, many others initially, because, um, you know, although I love systemic family therapy, um, I think Bateson was wrong about a couple things. things. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, you know, one of them, he said, was basically that power is just another way of punctuating events and relationships. But mm. uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Uh, power violence is, is real. It's material people don't experience rape as a social construction. So um, so those are, those are really important influences. And then there's a whole massive literature on resistance to interpersonal violence that's found in memoir, autobiography, uh, political studies, social realist fiction, uh, so on and so forth. So I've been a real student of that kind of literature for a long time.
0: That's great, yeah. And I've also found a lot of value in literature outside of the field, right? And it sounds yeah. like you you absolutely have. And so uh, my next question, I guess, is and I don't know if this is happening up where you are, but where I am, you know, it seems that the idea of trauma or trauma-informed is everywhere these days. It also, and this is, you know, I'm pointing to your work around language. Um, it also seems these approaches to trauma are heavy on the language of effects. And you've spoken and written about how this sort of language is troubling in that it conceals, uh, quote, conceals the victim's resistance to violence and it obscures the offender's responsibility for violence. And I'm wondering if you could say more about, you know, language of effects versus a versus language of response or and just how you use and, and what you think of this kind of trend that's happening, I guess.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, in the first instance, uh, offenders commit violence, they don't commit trauma. Mm. So as soon as you make the shift into referring to violence as trauma, Mm. um, you're putting violence into a category of a whole bunch of other adversities that in fact are very different. Mm. Uh, Rape, uh, a crime of human design is experienced very differently than a car accident. Uh, Both can be profoundly traumatic, but to reduce them to the same um, through you know, the DSM system of classification, for example, or, or through the fight, flight, freeze, submission, dissociation idea, um, seems to me profoundly misguided. So the, you know, if, you, if, if I was to kick a rock, small rock down the road, it rolled down the road, and then it'll stop and it'll sit there until something else moves it. So that's a cause-effect relationship. I kick the motion of the velocity of the rock is the effect, cause effect. Hmm. But if I kick a person, You know, the person's going to maybe cry, maybe kick me back, maybe run away, maybe get angry, maybe get sad, maybe laugh at me. You know, if they're six foot four and buff, they might feed me my lunch. (laughs) If they're a nine-year-old child, uh, they might cry and run away. Uh, So all of those actions, thoughts, and feelings are responses to the kick and me in the context we're in. They're not effects of it. So despair, for example, is a response to violence, not an effect of violence. And so if we ask questions about how did that affect you, you notice what we've done grammatically is put the person in the object position of the sentence. How did that, the kick, affect you? So we're not asking what they did about the kick or how they responded or what they thought about or anything like that. We're grammatically putting them in a kind of a, you know, a What would you say, a linguistic cage, Mm. so to speak. On the other hand, if you say, when you saw that the person was about to kick you, how did you respond? What did you do? Now we've positioned them as a social actor, and they're far more likely to begin to tell us what they thought, what they felt, how they made sense of it, what they did in the moment. I mean, just because you can't make something stop doesn't mean you let it happen. Mm. Uh, so the language of effects and impacts produces people as passive, uh, and so of course in the violence field we have, I mean untold numbers of theories about how passive and submissive people are, from the from the problematic notion of learned helplessness through to the more sort of a biomedical uh, quote unquote neuroscience explanations that we have now. Mm. So, um, you know the fight flight freeze dissociation submission discourse. Um, radically oversimplifies complex human responses to violence. It's simply not accurate um, uh, in many respects, particularly in cases of violence. Um, because it's not based on analysis of what actual people actually do, um, it's based on brain theory that is overlaid on social interaction rather than analysis of social interaction itself. So when you do that, when you, when you put a theory of brain function ahead of what people actually do, uh, you wind up in a difficult place because violence and resistance are first and foremost social actions.
0: That, that, thank you for that, yeah. Um, you you kind of touched on this, but I, maybe I'll, I'll stretch it out a little bit just for the listeners. How, how would how would a response-based practice look and sound different than an effects-based approach? Not, and especially in a world where effects-based language is so prominent and widely distributed. I mean, how do you work with someone? And this happens a lot, right? How do you work with somebody coming in with that language?
1: Yeah, there's a paradox at work here, which is important to be mindful of, which is that um, although virtually everybody responds to and resists violence in some way, shape, or form, um, almost nobody that I have met over the years would ever tell me that they had resisted when we began the conversation. Mm. And if if I was to ask a person, right away when I met them, oh, okay, your partner assaulted you. Um, how did you resist? Uh, they would look at me like I was kind of crazy. you know what what are you talking about? I mean I know that because I have asked that question uh, <laughs> at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. and, and that, the reason for that is that it's too abstract. It, it introduces a whole kind of set of assumptions that people are not necessarily familiar with or comfortable with. But if I ask um, a question about social interaction and I learn about the context around, for example, um, talking with a woman who was uh, assaulted by her partner um, just inside their house as they came back from an evening out, that kind of a thing, and um, I ended up seeing her about a week later, and and um, police were involved and ultimately child protection, et cetera, and so uh, I, you know she'd had this experience of being asked why didn't she leave them? And why do you pick these guys? This wasn't her first rodeo, so to speak. So, um, so I asked her, so can you tell me what happened when you got into the house? And she said, well, we just was just taking my coat off. So you can ask about the context. So where in the house is this where you front like what's near there in your house? Oh, well, there's a living room and there's a hallway that goes down to the left and then there's the stairs that go up and Mm -hmm. okay. What, what's upstairs? Oh, that, the bedrooms. That's where the kids were. We just sent the sitter home. She just left. I said, "Okay, so you and your partner are there, and um, so so what happened next?" And she said, "Well, he's going off. He's screaming and yelling, and you know." So I thought, uh, "This this isn't good." So I said, "Okay, so how how did you respond right at that moment? Do you remember?" And she said, "Well, huh, I kind of I kind of backed up down the hallway." Down the hallway. So where does the hallway go? She says to the kitchen. I said, okay, you're backing up down the hallway. So why the kitchen? She said, well, I didn't want the kids to hear. Uh, Okay. And any reason for going to the kitchen? She said, well, whenever we go out for a night, I know there's going to be a lot of drinking. I always leave the kitchen window open because my kitchen window is about six feet away from my neighbor Carol's kitchen window. And if I'm in the kitchen and he's going off, she's going to call somebody. Mm. So, so then the question becomes again, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about the other kinds of things that you've done to try to protect your kids? Because obviously you don't want them to hear this. And now we're into a long conversation about all different kinds of things she was doing to protect her kids and other ways in which she tried to recruit some social support. So the whole notion that she chose abusive guys had learned to be healthy, submissive, et cetera, et cetera. All that was out the window.
0: Right, Right.
1: It simply doesn't conform to the facts when you look at them closely. So re- for me, resistance to violence is not a reframe. Mm-hmm. You know, resistance is as real as violence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and if you if you if you're looking for literature, um, there's a wonderful new book by Stella Dodzi, um, you know, a kick in the belly, and um, in which she documents the ongoing resistance of um, w- women um, in slavery, West Indian women in slavery, and. The role of those women in over, overthrowing slavery and combating slavery over the years, mm. and she makes the point, and I absolutely agree, that if you if you conceal and deny people's ongoing resistance to violence, you are promoting a fundamentally distorted view of human relations and human life, and I think ultimately that that is partly what worries me uh, about the trauma discourse. It simply lacks an analysis of how people actually respond on the ground, mm. and that. When you don't see how victims respond and resist, this is the second part. You know, just getting back to your question about how does this conceal violence? If you don't see how victims respond to and resist violence, then you also are far less likely to see the deliberate strategies used by offenders to overcome and suppress that resistance. Virtually every form of violence contains strategies by perpetrators to overcome and suppress the victim's resistance. You know, for example, uh, men who violate their female partners—they uh, know that women do not want to be uh, violated. This is why, in the early stages of relationship, a person might be just absolutely the best guy on the planet. No, um, because he knows if he walked up to this woman he wanted to get to know and said, "Hey, bitch, why don't we go back to my house? I'll slap you around a little bit, call you a few nasty names. It's going to be great." Mm. Men know that if they do that, um, they're going to get rejected. So every form of violence including colonial violence and domination which continues in canada today and in the united states and many other countries Mm. um absolutely we understand um, people who exercise power and domination understand that victims resist Uh, and so and we have developed in the colonial context many different ways of making that resistance look like craziness or making it go away Mm. hence the dsm
0: I have a question. You and I know this is controversial in some circles, but you—I'm assuming you—and this is an assumption, but I am assuming you use the language of perpetrator and victim intentionally. Yeah. Um, because of the importance around, like, could you say something about that? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um,
1: well, we use—I use those terms for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a the term survivor. Is a is a good term? Is a useful term? Many people prefer that term,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I absolutely um, i I want to refer to people as they want to be referred to, if you know what I mean. Sure. So the the so if I'm in a meeting with a person or a family and we're talking about this, it's it's all about using the terms that are most comfortable or relevant for them. On the other hand, in this kind of a context where we're having a large public conversation, right? Um. The word survivor, um, one problem with it is that you can survive an earthquake, but to survive an earthquake is fundamentally different than surviving a rape, let's say. Hmm. And so the the term survivor does not by itself denote that a crime was committed against the person.
0: Hmm.
1: The word victim does. So. The word victim in, in, in some contexts, like the one we're in now, is arguably an important term to retain. It shouldn't be the only term we use. So I often use victim survivor in writing, for example, because I want to indicate an openness to different terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also we use the, the words victim and perpetrator um, as situated action terms, not as identity terms. So you can be a person who's perpetrated violence a quote unquote perpetrator and a person who's been victimized by violence, a victim, um, within 30 minutes of one another. Hmm. So they're not they're not identity terms at all. They refer to something that a person did in a context in a in a particular moment in time. And so we, we try to use those words advisedly. Uh, but I appreciate you asking because sometimes I launch into using that terminology a bit too quickly, and and I think for some people it can be really offensive.
0: Sure, and and but I had a sense of that, and thank you for the clarification. But um, so and this is maybe this is an, of an interest in mine because I am in social on social media and all that stuff. But I'm wondering, and it, and I'm seeing this, you know, this. I don't know what the word would be, but it's just this widespread, you know, use of effects language and trauma stuff and all that kind of stuff. But, and I'm wondering what are ways we might be able to challenge effects based language in the field, in social media, in the wider world. Mm. Yeah. Um, Well, there there are,
1: I guess there are a number of ways. Um, One of the things that's happened in Canada is that, Mm. you know, with the new sort of trauma informed practice. Mm -hmm. You know, the initial, th- there's a tremendous zeal, almost a religious fervor attached yeah. to to the, and governments have mm. uh, made, uh, spent huge amounts of money in training people up. And so the, there's an impulse there that I want to respect, which, you know, there are a lot of people trying to, you know, the original impulse was, okay, let's let's get away from what's wrong with you and let's look at what happened to you. It's, it's not about what's, it's about what happened to you. Mm. But... Unfortunately, because of the way things have been constructed and through the neuroscience model, the biomedicalizing of human suffering and the decontextualizing of suffering, the question of, you know, it's, it's not well, what's wrong with you, it's what happened to you, has devolved back into, and what happened to you is the cause of what's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, mm. uh, as, as Ian, jo- my friend Ian Johnson put it. Mm. So I, I think if you're trying to articulate A contextual view of human suffering and responses. Um, It's extremely difficult to do so within the DSM system um, because the DSM system is designed precisely to avoid context, to avoid culture, to avoid language, to avoid meaning. Uh, So it's kind of like instead of analyzing colonialism, let's just talk about depression among the oppressed. That's, That's really convenient if you don't want to look at who's doing what to whom. It's very, very helpful. I mean, the DSM is an important part of the colonial toolkit. Absolutely. So I, I think that's that's a concern. And But if, you, uh, if we want to try to challenge these kinds of things publicly, I think one way to do it is through a lot of good research that shows a lot of the early claims about fMRI are vastly overblown. Right,
0: right.
1: Other research is problematic, small sample sizes. Um, people who were, were originally making quite grandiose claims about fMRI are now backing up rather quickly. Uh, now that there's been time to examine some of those claims, there's lots of really interesting work, for example, by Derek Summerfield and others that are, uh, r- r- you know, quite uh, mindful and critical of, you know, the trauma-informed movement, um, uh, in a, in a really scholarly and practical way. So I think pointing to that work is really important. Um, but but like Stella Dotsy's book, you know, if there's a large literature out there that shows that people respond to and resist violence. And I think highlighting the ways in which people do those things, um, in our everyday accounts is extremely important. I mean, if you, if we do not help to try to point to how people actually respond to and resist, resist violence, um, we're really down a, we're really down a dark path Mm -hmm. in my view. And we've been doing that in the helping professions not only concealing violence, but then, of course, concealing how people respond to and resist violence. In fact, you could argue that resistance to violence is even more deeply concealed than violence itself. Mm. So I, I think that's... We have to begin... We have to talk about that. Um, we have a lot of a lot of good literature out there that, that can help us do that. Uh, so, so I think that's important, to make that literature available to people. Correct. But, you know, it's a bit risky to stand up in a hall with several hundred people there and say, yeah, you know... <laughs> Um, But I'll give you an example. I came across a a manual. that was published out of Australia, and it was the Fight, Flight, Freeze Dissociation Submission Discourse, and it was this kind of discussion about how your brain automatically reacts. You're not responsible for what you did. Your brain just kicks in. Uh, And then it gives the example of a a, a quote from this uh, young man who, talking about when he was younger, I think about eight or nine, and he says, yeah, you know, when mom and dad would get arguing and fighting, I was I would just get so scared that they were going to kill each other. I, I would just, you know, I, I was just so terrified. So so I would go get my little sister, my little three-year-old sister, and um, I'd take her up to the bedroom, and and we'd go in the bedroom, and, and I'd put earphones on her, and we'd sit in the closet, and I would wait until things calmed down. And, they, and the people who put out the manual said, that's an example of flight. Hmm. So I thought, well... Really, what are you missing there? Uh, You know, you're missing love, composure, compassion. I mean, he may even have had some kind of an understanding unspoken with one or both of his parents that that's what he could do to protect his little sister. So you reduce that to flight and it's an automatic brain reaction. You've simply, you've denuded him of his dignity and his purpose as a human being. And uh, what I worry about is that that is happening on a large scale. And at the end of the day, that's not helpful. Right. I do want to add, though, a caveat there. I do want to say, if you're using the word trauma in a loose sense to refer to human suffering, I I think it can be a useful term. But if you're trying to say, no, we have just these neuroscience activities, automatic brain mechanisms that are not based on adequate analysis, that to me is a serious
0: problem. Great. Okay. Okay. I, I think this is important. You've spoken about the importance of social responses and how responses from those who, who we turn to help can sometimes be more damaging than an original assault, for example. And I think this is very important. Could you say more about that idea?
1: Yeah, I, I think my, um, our take on that, when it, by the way, I should I should, I work very closely with uh, a whole bunch of other people, mm-hmm. but it it's kind of a core group of us, Linda Coates, Kathy Richardson, uh, Shelley Dean. So I just want to acknowledge that this work is a work of all of us sure. uh, together. Um, but um, I, th- I think for me, the, I was hearing accounts from people firsthand about how, yeah, I, I did, I called, I called the police and okay, and then how did that go? You know, what happened in that conversation? Were you, were you listened to? Did you, did you have a chance to say what was important? and Or a child protection worker or somebody. And when people would say, yeah, I mean, that cop, she was great. Like, she really, really listened to me. Then I would ask, what difference has that made to you, that that person really, really listened to you? And people would talk about positive difference. You know, I've, I just felt so much better. Finally, someone understands what I went through. So there would be relief and there would be, Tangible change in terms of sleeping and eating and relationships and less isolation, more connection with others. And I would also hear accounts of how people had had horribly negative social responses. You know, yeah, when my uh, grandfather molested me and I told my dad and he said, you little bitch, my dad would never do that to you. So my gosh, what did you learn from that? Well, I learned that I don't matter. So you begin to see immense suffering attached to um, native social network and institutional responses. Mm. So I started trying to look for the literature and thankfully there is a really large literature about this in feminist studies, but also in sociology um, and in other other domains and in autobiography and memoir. Mm. So um, Chris Bruin's work out of the UK has been really helpful here. there's a nice, really nice uh, meta-analysis done by Shara Vastra and colleagues in 2008, I think it is. There are many accounts um, of the second rape, for example, uh, which is when you get uh, negative institutional responses. Mm. So I think we, we really tried to integrate this, um, f- the, these factors into interviewing. So for us, if we're when we're interviewing folks in a first meeting, um We're likely to ask questions about social responses right away. So for example, okay, so you're hearing that this happened and right, have you spoken with anyone else about this? Does anyone else know? Uh, And how did that go when you told them? And how did you decide who to tell? And often we're hearing about negative social responses before we even talk in detail about the events that are of concern Mm. for folks. So it's a critically important part of the picture and it also tends to put to lie to these simplistic sort of brain mechanism models right because if if um, we could if the research shows and i think it does quite convincingly that the quality of social responses is highly correlated with measures of distress in fact maybe the single best predictor of the level of distress right so and is certainly linked to high rates of suicides for example among military veterans mm. And among police who report being violated by other police, um, you know, who and don't get adequate responses um, from their own organizations, there's a case in Canada, you may be aware of this 600 women RCMP members reported sexualized harassment and sexualized violence by other RCMP members. So this is the national police force that completely fumbled the ball and failed to respond appropriately to its own members uh so you you think about that how is it that they can expect members of the public to come forward in confidence to disclose to police when their own members disclose who are punished uh excluded from the forest lose their careers uh rather than being adequately supported Mm. so that the research about that i think is really compelling and strong and it fits completely with my experience of doing interviews with individuals and families
0: right Okay, um, I have. This is going to be two different questions, but I'm going to combine them here. <laughs> so, I, I guess I'm wondering for the P, our folks that are listening, a lot of them are therapists, counselors, and training, et cetera. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about, about how they, how we all can do a better job of eliciting resistances from the people we work with, and doing a better job of providing effective and just social responses.
1: Yeah. Well, I think first off, it's a matter of perspective or the framework you go into the work with. I mean, if you, if you take seriously the view that people are responding social actors, children are social actors, mm-hmm. uh, when people are badly treated, you know, we tend to do something about it somehow, even if it's not very effective, we try to do something. So if you make it your business to be curious about that, and it, it's actually a process of getting simpler, not getting more complex. Uh, simpler language, simpler questions, active grammatical constructions. Uh, so when your partner started getting worked up, uh, how did your kids respond? What do they do? <laughs> and how about you? And so you say you froze. Okay. What was going on in, in your mind at that moment? Well, I knew if I did anything, he'd kick my teeth in. Okay. So keeping still all right, freezing, keeping still, you know, you can see keeping still as a form of resistance, right? Yeah. (laughs) So rather than an automatic brain mechanism, for example. Hmm. So if we just remain focused on the details of social interactions in the contexts, you know, and, and uh, be curious about that, and and understand that for an indigenous woman in a remote location without police support seven days a week, the way you have to respond uh, to and resist someone who wants to rape you might be very, very different than if you live in an urban setting and you're an upper middle class white person and the police are within three or four minutes uh, if you call them. So the, the nature, the manner in which people respond to and resist all forms of violence is highly particular and contextual and tied to structural factors, geopolitics, race, culture, gender, um, sexuality, gender identity. So we have to be asking questions about particulars and connecting the macro with the micro. And social responses is where the macro meets the micro, right? This is where rape myths that are widespread in society meet the experiences of individual people. Mm-hmm. So it's a process of remaining really particular, but but also trying to connect the context in and understand how different people orient to um, the complexities of their lives.
0: Uh, wonderful, thank you for that. Um... Going back to language a little bit, um, you talk about the helping professions confusing the language around unilateral actions with mutual actions and violence, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that.
1: Sure. Yeah, Yeah, I've been really lucky to work uh, very closely with Linda Coates for the last 25, 30 years. (laughs) It might even be a bit longer. Uh, We did our PhDs together in doing microanalysis of face-to-face communication. Um, our supervisor, by the way, was uh, a person called Janet Bavillis, uh formerly Janet Bevan, who was a co-author of Pragmatics of Human Communication.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, she escaped the States and, um, so to speak, and came and was at the University of Victoria. So Linda and I had a chance to learn about microanalysis from her, which is extremely helpful. But one of the things Linda did was, uh, she, she st- we were both looking very carefully, me at more at colonial discourse and her more at legal discourse. And looking at how unilateral actions, such as one person attacking another, uh, were transformed into mutual actions. So, you know, the joke about it we make about it is if you hit someone over the head with a frying pan, it's not cooking. Mm. If you attack someone with your penis, it's not sex. And so what what you find a lot in legal settings, and this is in criminal codes in the United States and Canada and elsewhere is that violent crimes, including violent crimes against children sexualized violence against children is changed into a mutual activity so an adult forces a child into a corner and forces their penis onto the body of the child and uh, in criminal codes that gets called in canada for example invitation to sexual touching Mm. no sex at all can take place because children cannot consent in new zealand it's called uh, having a sexual connection with a minor You can't have a sexual connection with a minor because children cannot consent there can be no child prostitution because they cannot consent um there there can be no child sex work um, because children cannot consent there can be no sex by an adult with a child whatsoever because children cannot consent but what we have done on a really broad scale in all of our various countries and our criminal codes in legal settings it's transformed extreme violence Unilateral extreme violence into mutual activity Uh, where this occurs in domestic violence. You see, for example, um, an assault is called a domestic dispute. Well, a dispute is something two people do together. An assault is something one person does to another. So if you transform it into a dispute, what you do is divide the responsibility. So now both people are responsible for a crime committed by one. And this is one of the reasons we have problematic sentencing patterns problematic interviewing practices and it's one of the reasons we have such so many negative social responses is that the crimes are fundamentally distorted so if you want to put it in the colonial context uh, land theft is called settlement genocide is called exploration you know we have in, in colonial contexts like canada the united states we have really very sophisticated vocabularies written into the genetic codes of our public institutions that make violence go away by calling it something else. Mm -hmm. And so what Linda was able to show actually early on, um, this goes back to about 97, 99, she was able to show that the ways in which judges represented violent crimes was a better predictor of the sentence given to offenders than was the nature of the crimes themselves. So, so for example, judges routinely talk about uh, s- sexualized violence uh, as sex or as unwanted sex. And, of course, where you see this uh, kind of at its worst is in the porn violence industry, mm. uh, where violence and exploitation is represented purely as sex. Um, and, it, and that's one of my concerns now is that I'm seeing kids... 12, 13, 14, and my colleagues are 13, 14-year-old boys who've sexually molested their younger sisters after viewing porn since they were 10 years old. Hmm. Uh, And one of the reasons that our governments have been so maliciously neglectful, and I believe criminally negligent on this issue, is because they confuse sex with violence on a very broad level.
0: Yeah, and and that leads me into my next question. You know, we've talked about trauma. You just shared uh, about what you just shared. Are there any new or troubling developments in the helping professions' language that you are seeing now? It's kind of on your radar um, that we should be on the lookout for.
1: Yeah. Well, it, you know, um, I guess I'm, I'm interested in the, the kind of the colonial project of biomedicalizing the universe, the mm, world. Mm. You know, this has written, been written about really beautifully by Ethan Waters and others. Yeah. You know, the globalization of the American psyche, the um, the use of the DSM to diagnose people without context uh, as a means of marketing pharmaceuticals internationally. I, I think this is a huge problem for individuals and it's a huge problem for um, entire societies. I uh, just read a study, for example, from uh, showing how Iranian women... Um, are diagnosed as having borderline spectrum disorder, four times more than men and medicated for same. And yet when those women are interviewed, what they're concerned about is uh, various forms of oppression in their lives, various forms of violence and oppression. So that system of classification is used precisely to conceal the violence, conceal their resistance, recast it as mental disorder and illness. So I think that is happening in many different ways in many different places. And, um, I just had a conversation with a 19 year old girl who decided after diagnosing herself over the internet, yeah. you well, know, that she has a personality disorder.
0: There's and a lot of that.
1: I wasn't going to sort of, um, I wasn't going to convince her otherwise. So I'm, I'm very concerned about the, the use of social media to pathologize.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, for the interests of pharmaceutical companies, absolutely. And I, I think, now, what we're doing in Canada, just to pick more local, uh, more specific to my context here, is we have trauma specialists, highly, very well-known people who are now uh, characterizing Indigenous people as suffering from intergenerational trauma. Mm-hmm. And so, once again, and using the childhood, you know, the, um, was it? The, ACES. Uh, ACES, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so of course who then is going to become more under the surveillance of the state, it's going to be indigenous women mm. who are already having their children removed. So there are really sharp indigenous activists and scholars who recognize trauma is the new colonial frontier.
0: Mm. That's important. Um, that's a great, um, okay. I just was thinking about that. Sorry. Uh, my last question, Ellen, um, and I kind of ask this of all my guests these days and I just, what, what books, films, ideas, et cetera, are capturing your attention these days? Oh gosh. (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, um, I'm like, I'm a bit of a nerd. I'm not much of a, well, not like, not a, not the good kind of nerd, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the kind of a nerd who's open to all kinds of ideas. I'm afraid my Mm -hmm. focus is gets fairly narrow. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the in terms of literature, um, I've already mentioned Stella Dadsey's book a couple of mm-hmm. times. I mm-hmm. love that book, and there's a whole bunch of literature connected to that. I'm interested in the. Uh, I'm interested in the literature of indigenous res- resistance to violence and oppression. Those are things that I that I look to a lot. Um, I don't watch a lot of films, so I'm afraid I'm, uh, you know, yeah. I'm just not. Uh, able to provide any titles there. But uh, for me, there's so much already existing literature that I'm trying to work through. Right. Um, and, and again, for me, it, it comes back to memoir. And um, uh, so, you know, one of my heroes um, is Zora Neale Hurston and, um, you know, that writing and the Caribbean resistance movement, Aim Cesaire, um, the, the writing on resistance from Fanon, uh and through all, you know all of those sources and lineages that to me is a really pertinent literature it's no less pertinent now than it was when Fannin wrote mm. uh so i there's so much of that um and and all of it to me is fresh and interesting and relevant so um alice walker's book the secret of joy possessing the secret of joy for example uh, which is not you know super recent but it is recent mm. um there's an that genre um, I think is underutilized in the mental health field. And I would like to see that, uh, those connections made more um, more directly.
0: That's great. And you've given me a few uh, reading suggestions, you know, Stell Dotsy, Derek Summerfield, Chris Bruin, I'm gonna check them all out and, um, and more. So thank you for that. And Alan, thank you for coming on the show. You know, I've had multiple requests, I was telling you before I hit record. Uh, to get you on the show and I appreciate you making the time and, and, and it's just been a great conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to visit with you, Chris, and yeah. get to know you bit and talk about this work. Thank you.
0: Thank you. All right. That's our show. I hope you found as much value in that conversation as I did. Um, really important work. So, um, as always, please come find uh, the radical therapist on all its social media. Please share. First of all, share this episode with all your people. Um, go to the radical therapist YouTube channel, subscribe, and and watch some of the videos. Share them as well. Go to Instagram and follow the radical therapist, and also I the Dr. Chris Hoff Instagram. Go find me over there. And, um, of course my email, the radical at gmail.com. If you want to reach out to me, uh, for a chat, so, uh, you can do that anyway. Um, as always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff. This has been another episode of the radical therapist podcast. Thanks for listening.